Hello and welcome to another podcast of Father and Joe. I'm Joe Rocky here with Father Boniface Hicks. And Father, I was actually at a funeral mass here today and also with the feast of uh, Christ the King being the last mass that before we recorded this, um, it, it brought a couple of different thoughts into my head. Some things that we had discussed before in, in the episodes, um, some things that I've, I've heard from the Pope say, and I think I have a lot of puzzle pieces on the board, and I don't think I've actually made the complete picture yet. So going from, from one of the things that you've said before is that there's actually two judgments. Um, and then that part confuses me altogether. So just the closer right there. And I wanted to just start with there and then go into some of the things that I think I understood from the Pope, which I probably didn't. So let's just start with the concept of how are there two judgments? How does that even work? Yeah, well, it confuses me too, Joe. So it's it's okay. <laughs> the uh, we talk about a particular judgment, which is what happens at the moment of our death. So each one of us dies at a different time. Each one of us has, therefore, a particular judgment uh, at that time of our death. Part of the problem is that time gets really confusing when you step outside of time. Uh, so how people who have entered into eternity, which is what we do after death, we leave the confines of this world and its changing nature in time, and we enter into another world in which we are in eternity. We enter into eternity. And so since that's outside of time, things get really confusing about how that all matches up how it synchronizes. And so we start to like, things get a little fuzzy. <laughs> so you're feeling that, that things are fuzzy. I think that's uh, about just about right. Now, there may be doctors of the church who have more sophisticated ways of explaining this than I do. I haven't found those explanations yet. When I do, I'll let you know. But in the meantime, just to use the, the language that the church uses and to speak in the kind of uh, fuzziness, allow me the fuzziness, we talk about a particular moment of uh, judgment at the moment, at the time of our death, in which we are confronted with our sins. And uh, then we enter into also some kind of purification. Uh, we talk about purgatory. Again, we talk about purgatory in terms of time. We used to really do this before the Second Vatican Council. We talk about years off of purgatory, decades, hundreds of years, thousands of years off of purgatory. And, uh, and, and we have this sense that people are going through purgatory now. And so our prayers for them now affect their journey, but they're really already outside of time. So anyway, things are a little fuzzy, but just to think of the, the way that the church has presented it to us, you know, from the scriptures, it's not just the church's idea, but the saints and the church have presented it to us in a way that's accessible to us who are in time. We have the idea that, um, let's make it personal and talk about my mother. Uh, that way we're not talking about anybody else's sensitive areas. My mother who died three years ago, and I offer uh, mass for her. I do some sacrifices for her, some prayers. We talk about indulgences, the, the grace of helping someone in their journey of purification. The church calls those indulgences, certain prayers and sacrifices, penances, offering mass. And I'm doing that in an ongoing way. And we imagine, we think of it in terms of our uh, people who have died 
also journeying through this ongoing purification and we're supporting them on that journey uh, through time. So now the particular judgment is at the moment of her death, my, my mother was judged. I hope and pray that she was judged in a way that she at least went to purgatory to have further purification, but on her way to heaven. Once we're judged to uh, be among the just, then we're in purgatory and, uh, and, and perhaps already moving into uh, our final position, our final purification and union with God. Or uh, someone would be judged as going to hell, being condemned because you know, Jesus gives us some criteria like, as long as you did not do it to one of these least of my brethren, you did not do it to me. Matthew 25, we talk about that, that judgment. Uh, we talk about, unless you become like this child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus also says that. Uh, we talk about Jesus as our Savior. What You have to believe in your heart and confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord. Jesus talks about the Eucharist. Whoever eats my body and drinks my blood, I live in him and he lives in me. And he will have eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day. So there are a lot of different things that go into this final judgment and how God does this judgment. And it's not as clear as a court of law in the sense that uh, there are a lot of factors, and we don't know exactly how God stacks up all of that. That's why we maximize and do as much as we can. We we respond as fully as we can. We give our lives to God as fully as we can. So death, particular judgment, a lot of different criteria that go into that. Uh, those who are judged worthy of heaven are, may go undergo ongoing purification. And then we talk about another definitive moment in history and time, which is the second coming. And that goes together with the final judgment. And one of the key points of that is that we receive a body at that point. And it's a different kind of body than the one we have now, because it's a body that doesn't decay, that never dies. And it's, St. Paul calls it a spiritual body as opposed to our physical body, our natural body. It's The translations are a little funny, but uh, we receive a body and uh, we enter into a new heaven and a new earth. And we do that all together. So the second judgment is all together. It's the entire human race from beginning to end. And it's the definitive judgment, the final judgment, because the entire human race together is judged, renewed, restored to their bodies, and then to heaven or hell, period. So the purification is done, the, the, everything is done, and, and we're finally uh, given a, a body, a spiritual body, and then advanced to heaven, condemned to hell. And those in hell suffer more in their bodies. So they're not particularly, those who have already been condemned in the particular judgment are not necessarily looking forward to having their bodies back. So we understand those who are judged worthy of heaven and maybe being purified in an ongoing way also long for their bodies and to be united in the way that you know we will be in, 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 as embodied creatures like Jesus in his body has ascended to the right hand of the Father. Mary in her body has, has been assumed 
into heaven and and is with Jesus and the Father in heaven. So we will receive our bodies. But that'll be the definitive judgment. That will be the end of time. That will be the you know the new age that is uh, begins the new heavens and the new earth and whatever all that looks like. I mean, our imaginations, eye is not seen and ear is not heard what God, nor is the mind so much as conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. So our imaginations fall a bit short in all of this. But hopefully I've sketched out enough territory now that we can talk about a first judgment, particularly at the time of our death, a final judgment at the end of time, the entire human race. At the final judgment, we also receive our body and we enter into a new heavens and a new earth. So on that, and then as you've we've kind of discussed that concept of time, that once you pass away, you leave the spectrum of time, how the resurrection is the glory and grace of the resurrection are continuous throughout history, essentially. So my question, I guess, becomes the the first one at the points of our death is, is judging us as far as how we lived our lives. Um, did we make the world better or worse by us being here? And you outlined some of the ways that Jesus explicitly says to do that. And then we go into one of three options, hell, purgatory, or heaven. And the point of purgatory is essentially extra time to get pure enough to be able to go into heaven or not. So I'm assuming then that that final judgment is the shot clock's done for everyone. Where are you at on your test? Time to hand it in type thing. And that's just a cutoff line. Either you made it or you didn't. Is is that a group decision or is that a still an individual situation you're uh, you're scratching at the question that is begged by this how is the second judgment different than the first judgment and uh in 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 some sense uh i guess i would say i don't know i don't know that it is uh really the the decision i guess the the thing about the final judgment is you know, theoretically, there would be those who are still alive at the time of the second coming. So the second judgment just corresponds with the end of time, and it's kind of the definitive movement, uh, final chapter for everyone. Um, so there, there isn't a, and it's not like you have to hurry up and get through purgatory in order to make it in time for the final judgment. If you've been judged worthy to be in purgatory, you make it through purgatory. So that purification does fully happen. Uh, and there's no, there's no worry about that. But um, the final judgment is just sort of this final passage. The particular judgment and final judgment actually coincide for some people who would still be here at the time of the second coming. Um, and for others who have died, it'll be a, a kind of reunion. But it all comes together. And I guess the so, so judgment as if there were a different decision is not maybe a good way to think about it, but in terms of uh, that the decision is made, you know, and, and that's where the image of Matthew 25 with the separation of the sheep and the goats, it's all of humanity together. And then that, that separation takes place. Now they're already sheep and goats at that point, you know, so the judgment has in some sense already happened. They're, they're already different creatures, we might say, based on how we have lived, how we've responded to the grace of God, how we've been pur purified through our time in purgatory, how we've been judged at our particular judgment. It's already, 
kind of made us what we are, but then that final chapter takes place and the and the deal is sealed, we might say, and we receive our bodies and and enter into the, you know, the next world or whatever. And I guess to that point, there's a a, a further question is, you know, every, every time we've discussed the, the second coming is, is at the end of the world, um, almost as Jesus is bringing the, the button and pushing it, and he's showing up just to do that. Is that all it's going to be, or is it going to be similar to the first time when he's teaching us stuff along the way? No, the second coming is in glory, and that will be the end of the world. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's fairly clear in the in the church's teaching. Exactly what that looks like is, you know, there aren't real super clear accounts. I mean, it you know, Jesus uses some apocalyptic imagery like earthquakes and uh, storms and wars, insurrections from place to place. And he talks about coming in the same way that he has departed with the apostles saw him ascend in a cloud in glory. And he's talked about coming back in the same way, you know, as he's speaking of that literally about that moment or anyway, it's a little unclear, but he's not going to be born in a manger. He's going to come in glory, and that's going to be the end of time. It's not a revisiting earth to sort of try again. Now, would he do some teaching as he comes? What does it mean to come in glory? I don't know. But it would be different than the first coming, for sure. That's that's clear. Fair enough. Um, so so that's part of the, the, the question there. So I know that when we had our discussion in the past about how kind of purgatory works. You gave the analogy that it's, again, being a relationship, that those who ultimately want to be closer to God work towards it, and those who want to be more distant from God essentially put themselves um, further away from God, which is hell is the absence of God. So in a sense, it's, it's you put yourself there by how much you wanted to live the relationship and listen to to the commands of Jesus, essentially. And it makes me think of something that, again, could have been misquoted because things that come from the Vatican tend to be misquoted the more I've adult looked at things. But one of the things I recall the Pope saying, or at least articulated to me as the way the Pope said it, was that this modern concept of social group justice is a demonic idea. And I wanted to see if, A, that actually is in line with the teachings of the church. And since we are talking about judgment, it seems like this would be the appropriate time to have that type of conversation. Social group justice? Yes, as in basically saying that if if you're in this group, um, you are doing things right, and therefore because you're strictly in this group, nothing you can do is wrong. And if you're born into this other group, you are wrong by a, by a starting point. Now, intellectually, that seems like that would be very much against what the church is teaching. Um, but it is a movement that seems to have weight across in different people's articulations of thought. Yeah, that would definitely be uh, heretical. I mean, it would be a kind of class system, you know, the the Hindu class system of whatever that is, five or seven or nine different classes of people from uh oh the highest class that name escapes me now down down to the untouchables um and 
that you're born into that and and that through a process of death and uh, regeneration you would uh, maybe enter up you'd move up or down depending on the kind of karma you had when you died i mean that that's uh, certainly not christian and so the the idea that you're born into a class and another Christian heresy that developed around that was this idea of double predestination, that God has destined some for heaven and some for hell, and you don't know what you're destined for, um, That, but uh, you, you kind of live out your life and you might get you know to guess at some point because of how God seems to be working with you as if you're one of the elect, that you're destined for heaven uh, and otherwise you're destined for hell. So that idea of, of double predestination was also condemned as a heresy. That's a, what we find uh, John Calvin promoted that and others subsequently have you know, promoted that idea um, with a misreading of Romans 9 and 10 maybe. Um, so, or that there would be some other, you know, kind of group, uh, I suppose you could say to a certain extent, you know, those who are like born into the Catholic church, uh, baptized as infants would be kind of part of an elect group. And those who are born outside of the church or never come to know Christ would be part of another group and they, that would be condemned. And, and certainly that is not something we'd hold either. God uh, willed for all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. First uh, Timothy Two or something. I can't remember where that uh, where that is, but that that God desired all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. So uh, the Lord makes everything available for every individual. There there is always a little bit of a a, a balance, uh, a a creative tension that exists between the individual and the relationships. We an individual who is entirely individual also will not be saved in the sense that we're always saved through the church. We're really saved through relationships. And to illustrate in a kind of concrete way, you can't baptize yourself. So we're always baptized by somebody. We, we learn the faith from somebody. We receive it from uh, through relationships. And then we're called to be part of relationships. And that relationship in a fundamental way with the church and with other Christians, other Catholics, and uh, then we we have relationships in which we serve, we give love, and we receive love, and and so those relationships have a, you know, we kind of help each other along in that, and uh, now sometimes those relationships are have some deficiencies, and we they they lead us into sin, uh, and sometimes they are very grace filled, and they lead us to. Um, humility and grace and salvation. So, but we are really saved in relationship. It's a kind of Americanism to conceive of too much of this, uh, uh, too highly individualized version of Christianity. We're, we're really uh, meant to be saved together. But at the end of the day, I'm ultimately responsible for what I do. And this is the kind of parable of the watchman in the prophet Ezekiel. He says, you know, if somebody's doing something wrong and you tell them and they change, good for both of you. If you tell them and they don't change, that's on them, not on you. But if you don't tell them, that's on you. And so we have a responsibility to our brothers and sisters 
that we can't just live out our lives as isolated individuals and wash our hands of everybody else's salvation. I am my brother's keeper. And so those relationships are really important in terms of our salvation. And, uh, and that's why we see that even still in terms of purgatory, that somebody who is in purgatory benefits from my prayers, from my sacrifices. We're still in relationship. And so I can support them in that process of purification. And I think that we've touched upon that idea a couple of times as far as being responsible to have a kind of relationship where you can tell people that they're messing up and also put ourselves in a situation where we're able to listen to it. You know, that's one of the things that you've mentioned before and humility being such an important part of, of growth in life spiritually in that, you know, it does take humbleness to hear that you're doing something wrong and then to act upon it whether it be act upon it immediately or act upon it down the road to listen to it without shooting the messenger, so to say, and sometimes literally it is an important act of the faith. So, you know, I always try to do things in this podcast to try to point out how there's practical benefits of actively becoming closer to Christ and being able to listen to things that you don't want to hear is an important trait for anyone. Um, and to think about how that, in doing that, is one small example that makes you more positioned to become with Christ is, is quite remarkable. And how there's all kinds of little stepping stones that we often take for granted, but at the end of the day, are really the only way to, to truly live a happy life. And coincidentally... It also really lines up well when you listen to what Jesus said of having a good life in all aspects. And it doesn't hold you back from anything. It doesn't detract. It's only been an additive or a multiplier, never subtractive or divider. So I wanted to kind of put that thought in here as we're coming down the home stretch of today's episode. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, well said. I mean, it's... Uh... We just can't emphasize enough, especially because we're so not oriented to this in uh, in our culture, the importance of relationships. I, I experienced this very concretely when I became a novice at St. Vincent Arch Abbey. My first year in the monastery, our first year is called the novitiate. We're, we're novices. And I had five classmates, so six of us entered at the same time. And my novice master, who was originally from Hungary, and I don't know if he had this idea more inherently because people tend to be a little bit more relational maybe in Europe or if he just developed that because he's a good, he was a good faithful Catholic. But uh, Father Sebastian would always emphasize with us, do it together. And we had to ask permission to do different things, see a concert or to go to a show or to, to visit the, the nuns down the road or something like that. And we learned pretty quickly if we wanted to do it alone, almost certainly he would say no. If we came and said, all six of us want to do it together, he would almost certainly say yes. And I remember how much I felt the weight of that. Like, I, I don't want to work together with these other guys to get on the same page about something. I just want to do the thing. <laughs> and so overcoming that really deep-seated individualism, I, I can't say I've overcome it, but certainly my novitiate was helpful in breaking me of that and pushing me to do things with people and to, to become more inclusive, more 
relational, more uh, have a have a real desire to to do it together, to be together, to support each other. And uh, I think, you know, some of the very common sins, you know, whether it's like binging Netflix or or you know even worse, falling into pornography or some of these very uh, selfish and isolating sins. I think really play on our inclination to be very individualistic in our in our world today, and so any way we can break through those barriers is just so important. And that's a great action step for us all to take moving forward, and trying to think about how we could implement something like that into our lives, um, how to to become more connected and and less individualistic. So we thank you for for being your time here th- tonight, Father. And we will be with everyone here again next week.